You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Collaborations Podcast. It's episode number 34, and my conversation today is with Oliver Brands on collaboration and modern water management. I've had the chance to speak and work with Oliver in the past, and I've been looking forward to this discussion very much because of my collaborative work through the years with experts in the field of environment and in water management. Oliver, of course, brings these two pieces together in all of his work. Oliver is an economist and a lawyer by training, and what he would call a transdisciplinarian by design. He serves as the co-director of the Polis Project on Ecological Governance, based at the University of Victoria's Center for Global Studies, where he leads the award-winning Polis Water Sustainability Project. He focuses on water sustainability, sound resource management, public policy development, and ecologically-based legal and institutional reform. Today, we unpack a little of the role of collaboration in managing water, concepts of collaborative consent, and the importance of good leadership. Please enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Oliver. How are you today? Wonderful. Spring-like conditions and uh, optimism ahead. So where are you joining from today, Oliver? I'm coming to you from uh, the mouth of the Colquitts Creek here in Victoria, which is the traditional territories of the Lekwungen people, also known as the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Masonic communities. And for that, I'm thankful, and I look forward to having our discussion today. That's fantastic. I'm kind of a bit envious of you out there having spring weather when we're here in Alberta having warm, but still very winter weather. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and sort of what, what do you spend your days doing? What, what fills your time? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I often have to try and explain this to family and friends. What is it you do? And so, you know, my background is a little bit unusual. I have a variety of uh, sort of disciplinary backgrounds. So in a professional sense, I'm a lawyer and economist by training. I've done uh, work in ecological restoration, and I really try and bring these three spheres together, the sort of people part, the rules part, and the ecology or how do we make things function in our system. So there's a mix of science, policy, law, and all of that, in my opinion, adds up to governance and ecological governance, which is what it is that I try and spend my days doing, trying to really address the challenges we're, we're facing as a society from an ecological, from a sustainability perspective. And our point of particular focus at the university, so I'm at the University of Victoria's Polis Project on Ecological Governance, which is at the Center for Global Studies, where I play a role as an associate director. And then we have a very specific project called the Water Sustainability Project. And we try and tackle these sort of intractable problems on a couple of ways or in a couple of angles. One is really looking at water as this really important strategic lever How do you help society address things like sustainability, uh, healthy functioning watersheds, security? And water to me is a very powerful tool because it's one of the very positive ways where we can work together, we collaborate. And in my opinion, the way, one of the ways to do that, one of the most important ways to do it is you really have to think about the institutions, the laws, the rules. How do we work together? 
And that's what I spend my days doing, thinking about thinking and acting. I think it's really more than just ideas. We try and actually practically implement the concepts around sustainability, watershed function, uh, watershed security is a big driver right now in a lot of our work. And that is my point of emphasis. So you spend a fair bit of time working in water, obviously, it sounds like. What role do you see collaboration playing? You touched on it kind of briefly, but maybe dive into it a little bit and, and tell me how you see collaboration being a, a big part of, call it water management. Yeah, I think that water is one of those very interesting uh, sort of elements. You know, Legally, institutionally, it's not mentioned in the Constitution. It's because at least all the key levels of government, all four levels of government have a role to play. So that's federal, provincial, which is sort of the obvious stuff. Local government, of course, is critical. And increasingly, an understanding that Indigenous law, Indigenous authority is absolutely critical. So you have this need because water, and some people call it a fugitive resource, this idea that it moves, it it travels, it crosses borders, it makes you work with your neighbor, you have no choice. It's so fundamental to you know our basic things, survival, but even things like quality of life. So it's a really necessary component. And what's interesting to me about water is that it forces us to work together because we all need it. And it's, you know, there's this tension. A lot of people think about water as this thing that, you know, future wars will be fought about water. Some people have quoted. I see it the other way around. It's the thing that will force us to find a place or a space where we have to get along and we have to communicate. We have to work through things. And that's why water is so important to us because it forces collaboration. And it's interesting also, like if you think about it spatially or physically, it moves, it travels, and it integrates landscapes. So land meets water is a really important area ecologically. It's riparian, it's estuaries. It's also how the activities on our landscape often show up in the water and impact the water. And that's what drives or motivates us often to change our behavior. So it's a really powerful elixir in how we think about ourselves and our communities and what is what does it mean to have a healthy functioning uh, situation. And that to me is why water is so critical. And the collaborative part is because no one person can control it all. So we have to find ways, agreements, institutions, water boards, you know, provincial policies that really implicate others. And you think about, you know, just flip open the newspaper today on any given day, water connects to the half dozen key issues of the day health and security, economic prosperity, wild salmon, sustainable food systems, our sense of place, you know, our identity. These are all really fundamentally mixed into water in ways that aren't always obvious, but you know, you get past the surface, you dive a little deeper, as it were, you get into that. And that to me is a really powerful tool for finding ways. We don't all have to agree, but we have to find ways to get along and to work together. Has it always been that way, though? Is it is it growing in importance? Or if you were to graph the sort of the importance of collaboration, has it been growing over time in, in the water world? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the big shifts that you can see sort of historically is when you have relative abundance, you don't need to work together very well because, A, you're not going to run out or it's, you know, it's only for very short times. And so as our development and populations grow and our impact on the landscape increase, the importance becomes more obvious. Are we better at collaborating? I think we're learning how to do it. We're so, so 
it's become more important. You look globally, you can certainly see many regions where that has happened, you know, places facing real scarcity, which, you know, certainly Canada or North America largely hasn't yet, but it's changing. And then you add another piece in there called climate change, which really amplifies all the challenges and problems. So, uh, you know, many people have talked about the idea that climate change is our climate crisis is a water crisis. Well, that amplification problem, too much, too little, floods, droughts, you know, they've been with us always, but the uh, frequency and the impact and the implication are exacerbated or amplified. And that really drives the need, okay, well, we can't solve these problems alone. So it is driving collaboration and integration and the idea that, oh, I never really thought about how a drought might impact food prices or property value or, you know, um, the ability for the salmon to return, you know, these sort of knock-on effects. So you'd mentioned earlier that, you know, future wars might be fought over water. I mean, I think the saying goes, uh, whiskey's for drinking and, and water's for fighting over. Knowing that we have to collaborate better sort of from here on out and moving like into the future, what should we be doing to, to be more collaborative? Like what what kinds of steps do you see that would make us more likely to collaborate than less? going forward. Right. Uh, that's a great uh, thread. So just so you're clear, I, I, you know, when I talk about future wars being fought over water, it's because we failed to, to mm. figure out some of yeah. these things. So I actually don't think it's the threat that people would like to sort of present. I look at it the other way around. It's a huge motivation to get our house in order. So, you know, there's a couple of really basic things like we got to do way better at knowing our own water system, state of the water reporting, state of the watershed reporting kind of pieces. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's an unbelievably unharnessed local energy where communities are monitoring, they're understanding the issues, but not connecting it to the decisions that are impacting. So we have a bit of a disconnect. So, you know, those are sort of what I call really simple, basic starting points. But, you know, to get to, I think, the crux of what you're asking, you know, how do we do this better? I think we have to name the problem, recognize that in a lot of our decisions, whether we're talking about a decision about a mine or a subdivision or a force cut block, we're not usually thinking about water. So we have to elevate water in those kinds of planning decisions. We have to recognize water is fundamental to most of what we do, whether we talk about local economic prosperity, public health. Um, there's you know a dozen different angles where you can really think about it. And so we got to uh, put the sort of resources and emphasis there. And the other one is, you know, from a sort of a future co-governance model perspective, we have to take the idea that we all have a role to play, and in particular, Indigenous nations, Indigenous law, Indigenous governance being fundamental. The co-governance is really the primary path that we have to move forward on. And so that means recognizing the role of shared authority, shared um Western law being complemented or working in a synergistic way with indigenous law, that's stuff that, you know, we haven't yet tackled. We haven't really grappled really with in a proper way here in Canada, for sure, and certainly in most of the world. And there's lots of good examples where you can see places that are doing a little better in some ways and, and some places where we're doing pretty well. There's no one perfect model, but the idea that we need institutions, processes, decision-making bodies that have the authority and can much more materially affect some of those decisions on the landscape where we see the impacts on water 
being much more uh, driven by a sustainability, a longer term than a short sort of, you know, one or two year kind of window, but looking at it 10, 15 years out. So planning, really driving some of that and the ability to engage. We have to be able to communicate with each other. So as you sort of parse it apart, you talked about a couple of things there. And I'm wondering if in the water, sort of in the water management space, whether things like the words like authority and co-creation and those things start to get in the way of actually being able to move forward. Because I have some experience in water management as well and and realize how tightly those kinds of things can be held. And in other words, I don't want to give up my authority to make a decision despite the fact that you have a role to play. Is there a way to navigate some of that? Yeah, and I think you're doing a good job of sort of pushing and pulling on some of the key issues here, right? So you're right the old model or the old authorities where we could really probably in a world of abundance, you could have a couple of sort of what I call more standard engineering interventions where, you know, one or two people make the key decision, you know, how high is, is the water level going to go? Can we hand out licenses to the next farm or the next uh, vineyard or the next subdivision without real consequences? That was a simple process because the consequences were low. But when the consequences change, I think the reality is that authority has to be shared because you can't just make those decisions. So the older model, what I call more of a reductionist or an engineering-driven model, simply don't hold. They don't hold when all the engineering specs for a whole neighborhood fall out the window because we have uh, two 100-year floods within three years of each other, or we have a drought that's so severe that you know a whole town in British Columbia was wiped out by forest fire that you know overnight in essence so you so the rules of engagement have changed and so the structures have to change and then i think you come to an inevitable point where you have to share authorities because even the old authority holders can't execute the decisions they once did Mm. and so now you're talking about a whole different kind of model and you know yeah we're going down a, a realm of new because that is the point I think there are aspects, things like a central authority who might make a decision, what, what's a water quality guideline that we're going to hold because we know what pathogens will do to humans is something that can be in a more hierarchical, traditional system. But the trade-off questions, you know, how many farms, how much food are we going to grow? Is it appropriate to grow, you know, tomatoes or bottled water in a water-scarce region to ship elsewhere? Those are societal trade-offs, and we don't have yet much of the experience to do that collectively. And so that will have to change. And you're right, some of the people who hold the existing levers are going to resist. But I don't think that that resistance will work for very long because the reality is we're in a different world. Right. You talked a little bit about some of the indigenous viewpoints and perspectives around water and how it's central to some of the things that they hold close to the way that they they live. I'm curious, have you seen particularly good ways of sort of bridging sort of cultural differences and cultural, or well, differences in understanding between cultures? Um, you know, I'm fairly fortunate. I work with some very inspiring people. I think, again, it goes to motivation. And I think when we know what the stakes are and what we're working with, so when, for example, the difference between an authentic process a government-to-government process where there is some history and some trust and a sense that the decisions that will be made will actually be followed through, 
I do think that you can overcome cultural divides much easier. And that goes to concepts around collaboration where like the real authority holders, the real decision makers have to be participating. So right. it can't just be a process. And so if it's just procedural, I think that some of the talking past each other happens. But when you talk about something like water, it really cross cuts all cultures. All cultures see value, sacred, the importance in water. And so where the cultural difference often lies is in the role of science, in the role mm. of what is the priority? Is it economic growth more important than, you know, health or long-term outcomes? That's where some of that, I'd say, cultural or spiritual perspective might be challenged. But again, if you have history and you have a relationship, which is a core part of collaboration, it can't just be one-offs. If you know that you're doing this in an ongoing way, hence the model of co-governance meaning you're not just making a singular decision. It's not just about whether a mine or a dam or a subdivision happened in one corner. It's the ongoing decisions that come with it. Then you begin to both understand each other's perspectives better and the respect, I guess, or the appreciation, the value of other authority that might come in and the recognition that there isn't just one decision maker in most cases. In fact, there's going to be a variety and there's going to be a number of trade-offs that are going to have to really be thought through. So I see lots of good examples. One of my favorites, as you know, I've talked about a bit is, you know, just north of where I am in the Cowichan Valley is a very uh, exciting, uh, what I call the evolution in governance called the Cowichan Watershed Board, which is really co-governed between Cowichan tribes and the local government. And now there's a partnership as the province looks at a neighboring watershed called the Coxila, where there's a water sustainability plan, where this co-governing relationship, not just a one-off, one single decision, but ongoing. And the Couch mm -hmm. and Watershed Board has embodied that for 10 years. Can you go a bit deeper on co-governance? I think, and you know, we did a publication around co-governance, and we talk about some of the hallmarks of good collaboration. Right. And some of the really important hallmarks are this idea that the, the right people are at the table, that you're actually going to try and solve some things. So it's not just a process. You're actually looking at outcomes that you're going to recognize each player's role. So when the, in, in, you know, common in BC, you see a government to government arrangement, you see the province sitting down with a indigenous nation or an indigenous authority that they're each recognizing that they have legitimate authority. You may not totally agree on all aspects, but you're going to say, yes, you're, you have a legitimacy here. This isn't just procedural that there are, uh, you know, these kind of consent building, these collaboration tables are decision-making tables, which means that uh, the represent representation must have the authority to participate fully and make the decisions that are arrived at. That the scope of the issues, while extensive, can be brought down into the pieces and ultimately must be satisfactory to all the parties. So we're tackling the problems that matter to us. So yeah. if we're talking about a weir level, we recognize that that has to do with the flows that are going to impact fish, fish habitat, and the importance of fish, say, culturally to couch and tribes might be very different than the local government, but we're recognizing that importance. So those are some of the hallmarks. A few others I just would touch on, and then we can sort of tease it apart if we want, is that you have to start with that attitude or that approach, that consent or that collaboration approach right at the front end. 
and that the parties commit to staying there for the long term. So it isn't just a one-off. It is that we're building a relationship, but we're building processes to make not just today's decision, maybe decisions we can't even predict tomorrow, but that we know that we have to keep engaging and, and that it's multifaceted and that it's going to be ongoing. We're going to constantly be learning and we're constantly going to be adjusting because that is you know, the other aspect that makes water so interesting. It's dynamic. And my final two points would be that uh, each government, each authority holder's interest must be dealt with in a way that works for all the parties. So no one person gets to say, well, the conversation's now over, we've agreed and we're done, that in fact, both, like, you know, like any relationship, we've, we think about a marriage or a partnership, you have to have ongoing dialogue and it's got to work for all the parties. And fundamentally, and that's the practical part in my personality too, is you need practical outcomes. We can have the most wonderful plan that's nearly perfect and everyone agrees, but if we don't execute, it doesn't help us. We need to actually rebuild riparian areas. We have to ensure we're not taking too much water. We're not over pumping the aquifer, that we're uh, engaging communities to bring up the education so that we're understanding the issues, that we're building some common language that we can talk about the problems, but we're also intervening. You know, lots of science, lots of ecology has shown that we can restore watersheds, we can restore wetlands, we can protect these areas, we can defend our interaction with them. There's a role for recreation. There's a way that we can share that. So it's got to have some practical outcomes at the end of the day. Otherwise, all that effort lose, dissipates energy. Right. So whenever you're speaking of governance, there's always ob- obviously there's an element of government in there. And I'm curious how how you've seen this transcend sort of the government change that happens every four years, because one of the things you mentioned was commitment. And as we know, often what happens with a change of party or, or just a change in government in general is that all the priorities change and those commitments tend to slide, let's say. Have you seen ways or mechanisms to, to sort of overcome that, that problem? Yeah, that's, I think, a good point. I, I, you know, I'll just quibble a little because <laughs> government to me, is the institution around the public or a public institution that engages and does certain things. You know, in Canada, we lay it out to some extent in the Constitution and we can see it in provincial priorities. The politics part of it is the stuff that changes every four, well, mm. or potentially every four years. Government remained, and in fact, 80 or 90%, one government, one political government to another, it doesn't change. Water still gets allocated. Licenses still get handed out. The dam or the weir gets managed according to some plan or some process. And some of the priorities which become political, and you know, we can have a big discussion about democracy and how that fits, is where the politics part comes in. And what's been missing, which is our, you know, what we where we started for you know a generation plus, water has just not been big on the radar. It's changing. The last ten years, big deal, right? The laws and the institutions have changed more in the last 10 years than they have in the last 100, right? Because we could take it for granted. We could just work on the sort of superficial level and it was enough. Well, now we're facing a much more challenging environment. And so politically water shows up, becomes a much bigger priority. Yes, it'll shift. But I think some of the things like agreements and these bodies that function below the sort of high political level do operate and they actually offer that glue and that transition from one political government to another because it's still operating there. The staff that work in a region 
have a relationship because they're ongoing. They're not totally changing their priority. They may have less resources. It may not be a high priority to work on a given lake or a riparian restoration area, but that's where civil society and exactly as you say, more than government plays a role. You know, community, industry, um, local government, those priorities won't shift just because the senior government has changed. And so, you know, I think to your point that it's a central notion that not everybody sort of, a lot of language goes out, governance, government, but the idea that governance is something bigger than government and that there's a whole mix of different players and different priorities. Government is really powerful because it brings a formal authority. It can make rules. And more importantly, when the rules get broken, they can set consequences. You pump water illegally, you can be penalized. That's really significant. But just as important is the informal influences that come with a community that sets certain uh, standards, that set up a plan, that sets up uh, authority, right? Uh, social permission to be engaged in a certain way, the way we behave, the way we interact with our neighbors is really as important. It isn't rules. There's no rule book about how I interact with my neighbor, yet I find a way to get along. And water is one of those big drivers. You know, I've often used the example that you don't need authority if you've if you're working together to collaborate. The authority is not required. So there's no authority required in you and me deciding to go to a movie and picking a movie. That's right. Exactly. So I've read a little bit about some of the work you've done in collaborative consent, and I suspect you've touched on a lot of the pieces of collaborative consent. But can you just talk about that idea, that concept in a way to try to knit it all together? Yeah, and I think, again, you, you know, you can use it in a variety of ways. But the idea is that if we recognize authority holders as having a role, in a sense, equal, but equal is not everything the same, <laughs> it's equal in the sense that we have an equal ability to determine, right? And you can talk about all the direction, and especially as we talk about with Indigenous authority and the change that has come with a UN Declaration, the Rights of Indigenous People, the so-called UNDRIP, that this self-determination piece is what has been lacking in, in Canada and certainly see it manifest in water, right? Around drinking water, around uh, choices about how uh, watersheds and you know, lakes, streams, are, are managed, how uh, development like forestry, mining, and you know, other developments impact and therefore impact Indigenous traditional territories and uh, you know, uh, Aboriginal rights like fishing or sacred spaces, etc. And so the idea that there's these multiple authority holders and that by working together, you build consent, not the legal consent that comes with you know, the constitution or section 35 kind of consent, but the consent that comes with by working together, exerting our authority, making co-determined decisions, we are building tacit support. And we're not only sort of agreeing to something, but we're actually executing because we're invested. We're part of the, of the piece. And that's where the collaboration and consent concepts come together really to build out in a very practical way, what co-governance looks like. It's working together both for the practical outcomes, but for this longer term, because it's a shared vision, it's a joint effort, it's a piece that builds legitimacy, and the legitimacy is built through the various mechanisms that the different authority holders might bring. So it might be different councils, like in, in, in our system, you know, a council that's elected brings a legitimacy and authority because it's elected in a certain way. Hereditary Indigenous systems will bring that authority and that legitimacy in that way. And by working together, you reinforce 
the, 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 the points of consensus, certainly. You mentioned the Cowichan Watershed Board. Are there other examples of co-governance? Yeah, I think they're increasingly sprouting out and you're seeing lots of initiatives. They're usually done in certainly the ones that I'm most familiar with in British Columbia are driven by government to government arrangements. You think of the Haida as an example. There's literally dozens. And obviously, I'm most interested in the ones that are driven by water as a sort of key element. Right. And so you're seeing examples that are... Um, landing in a very practical way. And I think what I would argue historically happened was government was, uh, you know, provincial government or colonial crown government was very interested in development of resources, forestry, mining, agriculture, very sectoral. And water was always sort of an adjunct to it, but wasn't a driver, even wildlife, right? They kind of thought of nature or the resource sector as a place to extract where water was sort of secondary or, or not critical and therefore didn't talk about it. Where indigenous nations often through a worldview see water as much more fundamental and so it was a given. Water was sort of critical to you know species, to healthy uh, communities. It was in a way a part of the community. And so sometimes it wasn't also explicitly mentioned because it was such a given. And so you'd have these relationships about how we're going to deal with a forestry practice or whatever, where both parties are not bringing up water in the front and center way, but yet mm -hmm. it was either forgotten or so obvious it wasn't clearly emphasized. And so it got missed. And I think one of the changes of the last five to 10 years is the water driver becomes much more obvious. And the ones that I'm very familiar with is there's a, a project in the interior with uh, the five Nicola chiefs. So this is in the Nicola Valley. These are five different nations who have created a, a MOU in this case. But again, building a long-term relationship with the provincial government on things like drought, on things like um, how to deal with some of the landscape. There's some uh, contentious nutrients uh, issues around the farming practices and, you know, similarly there, there's a, a small dam, which I'd call a weir, that, that the management really has to change in light of a changing water cycle because of the implication to fish, the downstream, and et cetera. And so you have a whole mix of that on the one end, but you see that, that sort of almost like, you know, in spring when you see the field where the flower buds begin popping, you see it across the landscape. You know, one day it looks like there's none, and the next day there's dozens, and that's what's happening in British Columbia. And certainly across Canada, I think. So if I flip this around in my and think about it from, say, an industry perspective, or from the, the folks that are traditionally having to deal with, say, one decision maker, what's kind of the argument to be made to those folks who are looking for sort of quick turnaround? They're looking for, you know, the, the I guess, the certainty of that they think comes with a single decision maker. Is there is there an argument for this very same approach to that that viewpoint? Yeah, I think you touch on an important piece because if your intention or your hope is short-term, quick response, quick return, this is more complicated and it is slower. There's no doubt about it. The difference is once it's in motion, it's more robust, it's less contentious, there's less conflict, 
it's clearer. And I've always understood certainly my interactions with industry and, and colleagues working from that angle, that the issue mostly is around certainty. And we're dealing in an uncertain world. And in an uncertain world, the only certainty you're going to get is from these kind of lasting, robust relationships. Right. And so you can get a sort of false certainty of a quick turnaround and a decision, but then you're going to have, you know, maybe it's social conflict or maybe it's actually ecological. Maybe nobody will disagree when the statutory decision maker in a certain ministry signs the document. But if two years later, the water for the local farm or the drinking water, everyone has to go on emergency rationing because the the mill is over pumping the water, you're going to have a problem. And so you, you, you're trading a kind of immediate false certainty mm-hmm. for some perhaps longer term concern. And I think a lot of the industries that are sort of more willing or interested in being in place and having a longer term relationship are recognizing that. And that's why, you know, again, bringing us back to the couch and example the Cowichan Watershed Board, you know, Catalyst, which is the downstream user, is fully invested here in the Cowichan Watershed Board being successful, including on how the local weir gets operated. They could just demand, according to their license, we get this amount and too bad for everybody else. But they know that once fish get impacted and then emergency orders come in or Aboriginal rights come around uh, fish, etc., they're going to run into big problems. So they ha- actually have an incentive to be part of the solution. Because if they're not participating, then they're going to be left out when the real decisions come. You know, it's interesting because I was also thinking the next question I was going to ask is what is the role for, for industry at the table? Because it seems that a lot of big companies, a lot of these industries are also being driven by their their shareholders to have a voice in this space sort of beyond the profit beyond the the drive for economic returns they're they're wanting social environmental returns as well are you seeing that popping up as well yeah i mean that uh, you know the so-called social responsibility kind of argument is obvious right so there's a you know much improvement over the last 20 years or whatever about linking uh you know image and a customer base. So that becomes about profits and it becomes a very positive motivator. So, and I don't have a lot of expertise in that, but I recognize that's an important driver. The other one, of course, is, you know, if you have shareholders who are only concerned with quarter by quarter profits, it does make it more harder for uh, an industry or a, a player, a company to operate because on any given quarter, you may have to trade off to work with others is to trade off and that may have consequences. But if you're looking right. at longer term returns, ongoing returns, having a relationship and being part of that, you know, for Catalyst, you know, papers or Catalyst Mill is one example, they need access to the water to produce their product. And in fact, over the last 10 years, they've had to close down a few times, last 20 years, I guess, a few times because there wasn't enough water. So they're facing some of the same challenges. And so the water being well managed and well governed with less conflict is actually fundamental to the business model. Right. You know, and so that's one piece. And the other piece, of course, is if you're going to be in a place, your work base comes from that place too. So they have an interest in making sure that communities have good drinking water, have good access to the recreational amenities, et cetera. And so when you think about that, lots of great examples where uh, lots of interesting research on industry and companies being able to attract 
a very positive workforce is about how they are in community and what they're offering and how they're participating. And so a healthy community is about, you know, a healthy long-term economic prosperity. The challenge, of course, is the current model in many places is what I call an extraction focus. Get in, take, move on, find the next place. And yes, this model is actually meant <laughs> to undermine that style model by creating longer term, real community buy-in, real commitment, a real vision, a real plan with consequences, you're really going to force industry to think about where are they going to go. And I think it's right. We don't want all industry in every watershed. A, a water stressed watershed is not a place to grow tomatoes or to bottle mm. water or for beverage companies. It really, You really have to think about the ecology and the ecology is about the community. So it's actually moving the uses to the sort of the most suitable place and doing that in a way that makes sense for everybody so that it's, uh, the local communities, the indigenous, the provincial governments, et cetera, all working kind of together. Yeah, and I think having a say, right? Like that's part of it. Like if a community can buy in, and again, I'm not a believer in it's not one or the other. It's not just locals because just mm -hmm. locals sometimes can make bad decisions too. They can trade off the future of their watershed for the short-term economic game. There is an important role for senior governments to say, you know, we have certain uh, values that we maintain that we won't uh, degrade a, you know, a watershed. We won't wipe out a species. We have obligations. And certainly the indigenous nations have demonstrated that by being a longevity that we um, from elsewhere certainly can understand. So they have an understanding of what is needed and what is really important in a region that we've largely been ignoring. And it's actually something we need to change. And again, I sort of see and I, you know, I'm one of those people who really thinks water has a certain magic that lets you start, right? Like we're not going to solve the forestry or the biodiversity problem in one shot. We're going to have to start somewhere. And if we got water right, so if we got our watersheds functioning and uh, healthy and we know that we have environmental flows and we're able to deal with droughts and the floods in a way that is much more resilience building, we're going to get to 85% of the solutions on a lot of other issues, including, I'll, I'll have you know or I'll have you believe that carbon matters. Mm -hmm. Healthy riparian areas, healthy wetlands become really important carbon sinks. So when we talk about the climate problem, yes, we feel it through water, but how we deal with water actually helps us solve some of the aspects of mm -hmm. those kinds of big problems, biodiversity being another big one. You know, we've covered a lot of ground in our conversation today, and I know we could go in probably 50 different ways, other ways. Is there something that I've missed asking you that you'd want to add? Yeah, I mean, I guess the other piece that I'd like to always mix into here is the importance of leadership. You know, anytime you talk about change, and I'm not just talking about your elected leader, that's a type of leader, but, you know, the priority that communities and the local champions and leaders bring to these issues is, to me, often a voice that gets lost. And so, you know, one of the, you know, some of the work we do at Polis you know, we, we took a look sort of nationally and certainly in British Columbia, and we said, listen, each region has these slightly different kinds. You know, some places it's nitrate leaching into the groundwater and other places, you know, too much development, the riparian and other ones, you know, there's over pumping, so there's not enough water. And what we noticed is that every region is facing some kind of water issue. It's not the same one everywhere, but they have certain characteristics that are very common. And so... In the past, you know, 20 years ago when I started the work, you know, 
you'd always get the answer by provincial or national authorities. Oh, that's a local problem. Well, every local has some version of the problem, slightly different. And so there is a really important role. Again, when I talk about a much more uh, ecological governance model or watershed governance model, I'm thinking much more local. A lot more of the decision-making priority has to be more local, but that doesn't mean senior government doesn't play a role. It plays a really critical role around knowledge and information, around the rules, around enforcement, around making sure minimum standards are maintained, environmental flows, make sure that we aren't polluting the waterways, that, that industry goes through a proper review when a new development is coming up that is actually engaging citizens. That there's an unbelievably critical role in that kind of a leadership, but also in enabling. And it really breaks from this top-down model to something that's much more enabling of local action and local solutions. And the other part that, you know, I don't think we have one simple solution. The other part here is we need to innovate. And innovate means doing something new and different and learning whether that's helping us or hindering us. There's unexpected consequences. A region that might be really excellent at supporting certain aspects like fisheries may have other consequences. So we have to really understand that. And I think that that aspect of leadership and learning really becomes critical. And again, the only way I see that happening in a positive way is through dialogue, engagement, um, collaboration. You have to do projects together. You have to be invested. You have to see success as not just my success or their success, but as a joint success. A community that has a well-protected watershed where communities are recreating, where the local farmers are having access to water and there's you know local markets where there's some forestry practices that are sustainable, building revenue and jobs. That's something everybody can live with and be proud of. And that's what your the end goal is. It's not just turning you know, certain watersheds just into a park that nobody can go to mm-hmm. anymore, but it's actually creating multi-use. That's the real challenge. And that to me is, again, it doesn't happen. The best designed reports and the best thought out law reforms won't get you there. You need leadership and communities that are act- actively engaging and empowered to do that. So that right. leadership piece is really fundamental in my view. If you were given a Harry Potter wand mm-hmm. and you had like all the power in the world and you were going to make a change happen in the world of water and water governance, what would you what would you make happen? Yeah, you know, it's a tough one because you know there's a million places you could start. So if you're asking me, you know, in my own neighborhood or British Columbia, so I would always push back with, you know, what scale are we talking about? But if I were to take the simple one is the people who currently have the authority and have the ability to influence the outcome need to better understand how water is affecting their issue of the day. And so how water plays an unbelievably fundamental role in health, in economic prosperity, in um, you know our future prospects, quality of life is the place I would start. So I would elevate the importance of water and healthy functioning watersheds in all our decisions, that's the cross-cutting piece. So breaking down the silos, yes, you need a Ministry of Forests, but in a Ministry of Forests, they need to understand why certain forest practices have implications to water and how that assessment, that priority, isn't just about extracting lumber, but about thinking about the trade-offs of you know ensuring that the wetlands stay in place, that the mm-hmm. uh, landscape isn't totally denuded so that too much sediment ends up in the river or the stream. That, to me, becomes where I would start. And then, of course, the other piece to me would be 
a, a really act of recognition that we need rules. We need to be able to enforce rules. We need to have communities buy in. And so to buy in, they have to be part of the process. So we have to probably spend as much effort as we do on, you know, all kinds of crazy things like, you know, internet bandwidth and, and like, you know, we need to spend the same amount of energy in how we work together and build these kinds of local bodies, boards, you know, the idea that local control is really fundamental to how we're going to, you know, be on the landscape, be together for the long term, not just for, you know, six months or one project, but it is an ongoing challenge. So what I took out of that, that last piece was something that twigged in my brain was this idea that we need rules and we need an authority to deal with those rules, but the creation of those rules needs to shift from what it is currently. Is that a fair? Yeah, very fair. I'd say that that there's a, you know, and there's a myriad of different types of decisions. I think we can bring our very best science to help us understand, you know, how the climate is changing, what that implication has on water and how much water a river needs at any given time and how we can maximize the health of the fish by paying attention to the riparian. All that is, is you know, well understood ecology. And I think the role of traditional knowledge is part of that, but really bringing that forward in a way that we can rationally and intelligently interact with each other to make some decisions about, no, a development doesn't go here. You know, uh, we, we can't have more, you know, during the dry season, we don't uh, provide irrigation water for a third cut of hay. We're going to make some trade-offs, but we can do it in a way that meets a variety of needs. And the reality is we're at a world, we're in a world and we're many parts of Canada, certainly that there are trade-offs. We can't do it all as we might've in the past. There wasn't enough. There isn't enough water for every activity that we did before. So the trade-offs become part of how we as a group interact and, and make these decisions. So thank you for that. And so my last question, and it's sort of my standard last question, I always ask about a book. Uh, and I ask about books that you would normally recommend or that you give as a gift. And it doesn't have to be collaboration or even water related. It can just be a gift or a book that has caught your attention. There is this wonderful series of short books from Rocky Mountain Books. And they sort of tackle the different issues. Well, they're very readable. They're very short. And they're the kinds of things that bring a level of depth. And there's one wonderful one called Denying the Source, The Crisis of First Nations Water Rights by Marilyn Fair. That She's an unbelievable author. I've gotten to work with her, and she really always kind of hits the, the key point in a way that is quite remarkable. One of the very first books I read in the water field that really moved me was also Mark DeViller's Water. And, you know, that's about 20-something years ago. And he brings a journalistic flair that I think is quite remarkable. And what's interesting, or maybe sad in a way, is many of his little vignettes are still as true today as they were then. So we haven't really solved them yet. And there may be a sort of secret message in that, that the secret message is we may never solve all these problems. And if we can kind of almost in a Zen-like way, think about not having to solve them all, but recognize that we have to continually work on them, yeah. I think has a certain magic. And so I like it when a uh, a good writer or a good storyteller can tell you a story that's very specific to a place. So it's very grounded and real, but has a sort of transcendence that lets you talk. And so those two books to me do that, uh, Denying the Source and uh, Mark DeViller's Water, which again, I'm sure there's been many uh, more recent. I'll be honest with you. I don't read a lot of water books on my <laughs> bookshelf 
anymore because that's most of my day. I try and read other things to help me change my, my mindset. But I know that there are certain writers that have a way of capturing the magic that I think is quite remarkable. Well, I, I certainly appreciate the viewpoint because it adds to my book, my list of books that uh, I, I'm trying desperately to work my way through. <laughs> and the recommendations always run a pretty wide pretty wide spectrum. So I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today about this. I know water water is close to my heart. It's, it's my background as a biologist sort of plays into a lot of this discussion and also engagement, etc. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I appreciate your effort. And I you know that <laughs> it took us a while to get here, but hopefully it was worth it. It was. Thank you very much. Thank you. Those of you that know my background probably understand how this conversation with Oliver is close to my heart. I've spent pretty much my entire career working in some aspect of water or aquatic environment and collaboration. So first and foremost, I really appreciate Oliver's perspective of water as a unifier, as something that means we have to get collaboration right. That it's through collaboration that we iron out our issues around water. I mean, what else is there to do? As we understand better the limits of water here and everywhere, the old ways of thinking and deciding will have to change. It's not a matter of if, but when. As Oliver put it, the decision makers of today are losing the ability to execute on their decisions. And so the path forward in good water management and modern water management is through collaboration. Oliver spoke to another aspect of water as a unifier that really resonated with me. And that is the thought that if we manage water well, we will have met many of our other environmental management issues, whether they are land or air or biodiversity. Too often I've heard the argument that we need to integrate, in air quotes, these various media, not realizing that water is that integrator. Can you do me a favor? Could you share this episode with a friend and tell them why you think they'd appreciate the show? If you took something specific from this episode that you found insightful or helpful, please post a comment about it on your favorite podcasting platform. Until the next time, thank you for listening and happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.